We're in the season of Lent. In fact, we see the finish line, right? Because next Sunday is Palm Sunday. Then you have Good Friday, and then we have Easter. Lent is all about trying to understand what God has done, why it was important for Jesus to come. And we've rehearsed some of that in the songs that we've sung and the readings that we've done already this morning. Paul was very concerned about that, and I'm going to be reading from um, the book of Romans. We'll read the last part of chapter 5 and then go on into chapter 6. Paul has just been working hard to help the people that he's writing to in Rome to understand that death came through Adam, but that life comes through Jesus Christ. And then I'll pick it up at verse 18 of chapter 5. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over sin. Death The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather Offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law but under grace. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is my imaginary drive through the McDonald's in Pella. I'm familiar with that McDonald's because the grandkids and I go there oftentimes. It's a drive-through um, 
these days because uh, I don't think we're still allowed to eat inside. We can get some food inside, but we don't. We just drive through. Got four grandkids sitting behind me and beside me. I'm uh, pulling up to the kiosk where I place my order, and I'm talking to James. I happened to learn that James was a good friend of my sister Nellie. She passed away about a year and a half ago, and James was one of her good friends. And so when we check in with each other, we check in about her and how we're doing in terms of her loss. But James takes my order, and I'm watching it add up. Happy meals, my fish sandwich, some extra fries. Here the bill is going to be 40 or $50. It's getting to be quite the bill. And James lets me see exactly what it is that my bill is. So I'm done ordering, and I drive up when I can, because there's often a row of cars that we're following, drive up to where I pay James my money. And I hand him my credit card. And James says, you don't owe a thing. I don't owe anything. I saw I owe about 50 bucks for all those Happy Meals and my fish sandwich. No, you don't order. You don't owe a thing. Why? Well, the person ahead of you paid your bill as well as theirs. I said, the person ahead of me? Do I know the person ahead of me? Who is ahead of me? Did they pay my bill as well as theirs? James says, yes. I don't recognize who's ahead of me. I don't know. I said, James, why did they do this? Well, they just paid it forward. I drive forward, I get my food, and I drive away. That's never happened to me, by the way. And I've never done that for anybody right behind me, but I've heard stories about that. People paying for those that are right behind them and just watching the expressions of surprise and astonishment on their faces when they find out, I don't have to pay for my food today. Paul is trying to describe exactly that kind of sentiment, that kind of movement where we owe God everything, where we are doomed to death and hell and damnation. And we find out that our debt has been paid for. And that we, in effect, have a letter that we can wave around, paid in full. I get into heaven because my debt has been paid for. Awesome feeling, wonderful. And to know that, okay, God, I, I, still, I still have that short temper. I still am pretty selfish and self-absorbed. I still have issues with this person who doesn't have the same political views, let's say, that I do, and I really have issues about that, or someone I need to work something out with yet, I still am not getting all that along 
very well with one of my kids. In fact, I'm really alienated from one of my kids. I deal with lust. I am attracted to pornography. I have all of that going on with me, God. But it's paid in full. And I will get into heaven. If that's where it stops for us, Paul's got some more things that he wants to say to us. And he does that in chapter 6, verse 1. Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound so that we can keep on waving that letter? Shall we go on sinning? And to paraphrase it loosely, his response is, are you crazy? By no means, he says. By no means. You have died to sin. You are not under the dominion of sin anymore. You're under the dominion, you're in the dominion, you're in the control of grace. Now, I was wondering how to illustrate that a little bit, and you see in my notes that I found a way to do that. Um, Life cycle of a frog. If you have a smartphone, all you have to ask it is, give me the life cycle of a frog. And it gives a nice little rundown on the life cycle of a frog. It starts out, of course, as an egg in the water, And then at some point, that egg produces little tadpoles. Each of the eggs produces a little tadpole that look a lot like fish. And they have gills, and they swim around in the water, and they have a long tail, and they look just like a fish. And they're living in the water. But then as time goes on, the tail gets shorter, and legs begin to grow, And lungs begin to grow. And at some point in time, that tadpole, now frog, jumps out of the water and lives in the air. It still spends a lot of time in the water. But it is now no longer living in the water, but in the air. That's an illustration of how we ought to be thinking of ourselves here. Paul talks about our relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul talks about the transformation that you and I, who are redeemed by grace, ought to be going through. In fact, he connects it with baptism. Just as We were baptized into Christ, and Christ died and rose again. We, in some mysterious way, also die with Christ and are raised again. He mentions baptism. Now, where's your baptismal font here? Oh, here it is. Okay. In most of our churches, perhaps the illustration of baptism doesn't ring so true 
to what Paul is talking about here. So I think I'm, I'm going to lift this up here and see once. Oh, yeah, there it is. Okay, when you baptize a baby here, I'm guessing you do what I've done over the years. You bring this to the front somewhere. The little bowl is filled up with water. And then when it comes time to baptize the little baby, you take some water in your hand and you put it on the forehead of the baby. I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptism by immersion is perhaps a better picture of what Paul is trying to illustrate here. In California, uh, Ruth and I were in California for about 16 years in this church called the River. There were people, there were adults who were becoming members of the church who had never been baptized. They were becoming members. They wanted to be baptized, of course. We wanted them to be baptized. And they asked if they could be baptized by dunking, by immersion. And we, we don't have any issue with that. The mode of baptism is not the issue. In fact, the old forms make reference to baptism by sprinkling or by immersion. And so he said, well, I think that'd be okay. How do we do that? We weren't a Baptist church. Many Baptist church have some sort of baptistry in the back here that they can fill with water, and then you can go in and get baptized as an adult. We didn't have that. So what are we going to do? Well, we had some dairy people in the church. They said, well, how about getting a cattle tank? So, all right, we cleared in our church a little bit of room, and we, you know, I wasn't the senior pastor of the church, I was the associate pastor, and so some of these responsibilities fell to me. So I was the one who had to make sure that tank got into the sanctuary on a given Sunday. And so the tank, I, I, it, it leaked a little bit. The drain at the bottom couldn't be plugged up very well, so I laid out a big old plastic uh, whatever and then put the tank there, filled it up with water on the Sunday morning, tried to make sure that the water wasn't icy cold, got some hot water in there so the water was at least lukewarm. And so there were times, that was a Sunday, when these adults were going to be baptized by immersion. And so that's what we did. And I thought, how do I do this? I had no training about this in Calvin Seminary. So I had to kind of figure it out. Well, I think I'll wear shorts, for one thing, because I'm going to be standing in that tank of water. So I wore shorts to do this. And, and, and... So what, what do I do? Yeah, uh, this adult is, is fully dressed. I get in the tank of water, and, and then I, I sort of coach them to hold, you know, their nose uh, shut, and, and I'm going to just drop them into, lower them into the water. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and bring them back up, and <coughs> they're, they're ready to breathe again. And, and then I can change back into my preaching clothes during the offering that happens next, right? So I'm ready to go. And they have all sorts of towels available to them so they can dry themselves off. So that's kind of what it looked like. But it's a picture of what Paul is trying to describe. We, we die with Christ, and we are raised with Christ. We die with him, and therefore die to sin. 
And then we're raised to new life. That's what Paul describes here. How, how can we go on? We died to sin. This is 6 verse 2. How can we live in it any longer? Uh, we were buried with Christ through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. That's what Paul is saying here. Died to sin. Well, you mean Paul is really making the point that we do not sin anymore? And I would want to stop and say, no, that's not the point he's making. You go into chapter 7, and Paul just gives testimony to his ongoing struggle with sin. But he's also saying there is transformation, there is newness that happens with us who are now in Christ. I read this little illustration about how to look at this. Two people. I'm, I'm in my car. It's, it's springtime in Iowa. The roads are muddy. Gravel roads are muddy. And so I'm driving down this muddy road. And here I come upon two people who are sitting there alongside of the road. And I stop and ask, well, what, what's the problem here? And the first one says, well, I, my legs are broken. I cannot walk. I'm waiting for someone to come and pick me up and take me home. Okay. You go to the second person, also sitting there. What's the problem? Well, my legs were broken, but they're healed. But... I haven't been working very hard at any physical therapy. I have not been working to strengthen my muscles. I am not able to walk very well, and I need help. And the question is, which of those two represent the way we ought to look at ourselves? And the answer is the second person. We have been healed. We have been made whole. Our sins are forgiven. And we're asked to now do the spiritual therapy that helps us grow in Christ. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. We sang a song about that. Spirit of God who dwells within my heart. We sang that. We hear Paul saying, and, and you, you get a little further on into Romans. This is chapter 12 where Paul says things like this. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore I urge you in view of God's mercies to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to approve, test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And in the other uh, letters to churches, to the churches in the province of Galatia, he makes the same thing. Throw off the old clothes, the old rags, and put on the new clothes give evidence of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, he writes in Ephesians. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness, self-control. 
That's what we are called to do. Those are the spiritual exercises that we ought to be working at so that we can live life in the dominion of grace, in the newness of grace. The Holy Spirit has invaded us. It makes a difference. What could some of those spiritual exercises look like? Well, those of us who've uh, (laughs) grown up hearing catechism preaching, and in my case, preaching through the Heidelberg Catechism numerous times during the course of my ministry, you find out that first you deal with your sin and misery, and then you deal with the grace that we have in Jesus Christ, and then you find yourself in part three of the Heidelberg Catechism, the part having to do with gratitude, with the response that comes to us, the expectations that come to us because of God's work in us through Jesus Christ. And I was just looking again because you run into the Ten Commandments and you run into the Lord's Prayer. And I was just looking at some of the teachings that we encounter when we get to the Ten Commandments. Because what we're talking about here is not just what you hear in terms of the commandment itself, but also some of the implications So here are some of the spiritual exercises that you and I could be involved in. Um, For instance, let me just go through some of this. Uh, The first commandment has to do with have no other gods before me, right? The catechism goes on to explain idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God. That's the kind of spiritual exercising we need to do. The third commandment about don't take God's name in vain, that we neither blaspheme the name of God by cursing nor share in such horrible sins by being silent bystanders. No sin is greater, no sin makes God more angry than blaspheming his name. Reminds me of a little story when I was serving a church in Denver, uh, there'd be a, a morning where us preachers would go and do a round of golf and have some breakfast and then go to work. And uh, John Van Riggenmorter was at the first CRC, I was at the second CRC, and we were the two guys that showed up to go golfing, and we were, we were put together with a third guy to kind of make a threesome. And, and sent off to our round of golf. And this guy had a filthy tongue. He blasphemed God's name. And to his credit, my colleague, John, just stopped at one point and said to him, please, don't use the name of my Lord in vain. The guy was sort of taken back, and he sort of changed the way he talked until he got to the second hole and he missed his putt, and there it came again, the language. 
And John and I looked at each other and we said, okay, we tried and we're just going to have to kind of live with it, maybe illustrate how to respond to a missed putt without blaspheming God's name. But that's a spiritual exercise that we're called to do. Here's one about the fifth one, honoring father and mother. I honor, love, and be loyal. Listen to this. I honor, love, and be loyal to all those in authority over us. That I be patient with their failings. Why? For through them God chooses to rule us. Talk about doing some spiritual therapy in the context of our political setting. The sixth one about not killing. I am not to belittle, insult my neighbor, not by my thoughts, my words, my look or gesture. I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself either. By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, envy, hatred, anger, vindictiveness. In God's sight, all such are murder. Envy, hatred, anger, vindictiveness. God tells us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly to them to protect them from harm as much as we can and to do good even to our enemies. Wow. A lot of spiritual work that needs to be done. The seventh one. Um, Committing adultery. That's the seventh one. We are temples of the Holy Spirit, body and soul, and what God wants both to be kept clean and holy. That's why he forbids everything which incites unchastity, whether it be actions, looks, talk, thoughts, or desires. The eighth one, killing. I do whatever I can for my neighbor's good and that I treat others as I would like them to treat me. The ninth one about bearing false witness. I should love the truth, speak it candidly, and openly acknowledge it. And I should do what I can to guard and advance my neighbor's good name. And then finally, um, the catechism says, we should begin to love, live according to all, not only some of God's commandments. While praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach our goal, perfection. Hmm. I need to do a lot of work. I'm guessing some of you need to do a lot of work. And we need to keep thinking about what we do with our temper, our lust, our selfishness, our lack of kindness, our lack of faithfulness in prayer and in Scripture reading. And maybe here, once again, 
the words of that cadet hymn where we sing, Living for Jesus. A life that is true, striving to please Him in all that I do, yielding allegiance, glad-hearted and free. This is the pathway of blessing for me. And then let me just read that refrain as our prayer now. O Jesus, Lord and Savior, help us to give ourselves to you for You in your atonement gave yourself for me. We owe no other master. May our hearts be your throne. And may our lives be given henceforth to live. O Christ, for you alone. Amen.